Hey there, I'm Heather Mulder, a former AmLaw 100 partner who, just five years into my legal career, found myself questioning, why work so hard to barely be squeezing life in? So that I wouldn't become yet another attorney burnout statistic, I decided to redefine success on my terms from the inside out, which is what enabled me to build a profitable legal practice while navigating my way through the challenges of two kids and two bed rests, the 2008 financial crisis, and a battle with breast cancer. What I learned is that you can build a successful legal career without sacrificing your health or personal happiness. And I'm on a mission to help you do exactly that. Join me each week for practical, unfiltered advice on how to successfully navigate the challenging legal market and succeed in both law and life. This is the Life in Law Podcast. Well, hello there, everybody. This is Heather Mulder, host of the Life in Law Podcast. And today we have a special guest with us. Welcome, Allison. Hi, Heather. I'm so excited to be with you. And I'm so excited to have you today. So I remember when um, you reached out and it's on a topic, guys, that may not sound very sexy, but it actually is because you love to talk about and to teach people how to systematize so that they can grow revenues while also freeing up more time. And I think we can all agree that sounds really wonderful. (laughs) Yes, please. (laughs) Yes, yes. And more yes, right? (laughs) Yes. Yes. So before we get into the ultimate topic of the day, I would love for people to get to know you a little bit better. What do you do now? So um, I am known as the law firm mentor. And that title came out of my personal experience of starting a law firm, very quickly realizing that being a great lawyer has nothing to do with being competent (laughs) in business, uh, knowing what I didn't know or uh, not knowing what I didn't know. Uh, I just thought I could work harder and figure it out. And I think a lot of lawyers do that. And so 40-hour work weeks became 50 hours, became 60 hours, became 70 hours, and on and on, until one day I had hired my third incompetent staff person, realized that wasn't going to work, so I let them go and said, you know, I just can't take the psychological trauma of hiring one more person that can't do the job, so I'm just going to do it myself, and decided I would be a secretary from 6 in the morning till 8.30. I would be a lawyer from 8.30 to 6 p.m., Take a little snack break at six uh, and then back on the clock at six thirty, seven o'clock to be a secretary for the last few hours of the day until nine o'clock. I went home exhausted and I would rinse and repeat that cycle over and over again, <laughs> seven days a week for several weeks until exhaustion set in and literally driving home one night. Um, I woke up one quarter centimeter away from a guardrail <laughs> Oh! So quickly realized that working harder does not work. And that we have to make better choices. We have to be more strategic with our time. I started looking into getting help, started working with business coaches, very quickly took my own natural orientation toward creating systems around everything, married that to what I learned and was able to turn my law firm from $0 into a multi-million dollar business in three and a half years. And then- I was essentially bored. (laughs) I put myself out of work. (laughs) My business required very little of my time. And I love lawyers and I love lawyering. So uh, I got to still enjoy mentoring my employees, but I was, you know, missing something. And so um, about that time, I started finding people on social media and lawyers were starting to assemble themselves in groups to try to get help with business. And so I started naturally giving out support, guidance, uh, resources to the extent that people were asking. 
realized I had a knack for it and then got some some training and really went into the field of coaching and was able to turn this business now, the law firm mentor, into a multi-million dollar business in three and a half years. Three and a half years seems to be my number. One day I'm <laughs> going to start a business and it's not going to take me so long. <laughs> but that's your magic be, number. Right. That's the magic number for me. But you know, it really has been just a labor of love. I, I absolutely love having lawyers all across the country uh, come to my company. We now have five coaches on the team. And we really focus on creating a system around everything. So systems is its own topic, how to create Mm -hmm. them, how to teach them, how to create a culture around a systemic way of doing things. But more importantly, uh, is that there is a system for every process in your business, every category of activity in your business, so that your growth has a system, your people have a system, your communications And everything then is becoming predictable and reliable for you. So you're not in a feast or famine state. You're not in a chronic chasing of activity state. You're not coming Mm -hmm. in and wondering what's going to happen that day. Everything is dialed in in a way that allows you to have the psychological freedom that makes the practice of law and the business of law just so much more enjoyable. Yes. No, totally agree with everything you've said. And there's a couple of things I want to point out in your story that I think is really relevant to a lot of our audience, a lot of lawyers in general. Number one is this idea that you have to do it all and that there's there's a lot of people out there who just don't fit the bill. And so that requires you to do everything on your own, which really isn't true. Yes, sometimes people, we hire the wrong people and you have to take your time to find the right people, but there are definitely people out there who can help. That's number one. And we we convince ourselves of that. And so we fall into this horrible cycle (laughs) that does nothing but burn us out. I mean, there is no, you can only double down so much before you end up completely burnout. And burnout looks a lot of different ways. For some anxiety, for some depression, for some really bad coping mechanisms like alcohol and drugs. For some like you, (laughs) you end up in a big accident. Well, I did the other stuff first, just to be clear. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, it, years in recovery from it exacerbates, right? It just you. one thing leads to another, leads to another. And if you never break that cycle, there is no, it's a spiral down y'all. It doesn't stop until you stop what you're doing and change things. And it's really important to acknowledge that. The other thing I would say, and I'm sure we're going to get into this, but I wanted, I'm well, it's kind of the a question slash statement. I'm pretty sure that when you have real systems in place and processes, number one, that makes it easier to identify the right people and then also to train people. Because I do find, at least in my clients, that sometimes it's not the people they've hired that are really the problem. (laughs) It's how they have or have not managed. And with systems and processes, when you systematize stuff, it makes it a whole lot easier to teach people and get them on board and allow them to do the job that they're there for. Is that correct, do you say? Yeah. So, you know, the thing with people, it's, I want to go back to something you said first, and then I'll address that specific point, which is this idea that we convince ourselves that we have to be the one who does it. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of people don't recognize is that that really is a, um, a is a trauma response, right? At some point, you you learned that people were not reliable for you, mm-hmm. and so you just married yourself to the idea that I have to do it myself because it felt like it was the safest choice. 
And the challenge with that is that intellectually, on some level, it's true when you first adopt that mindset, right? Because Mm -hmm. what happens is you bring more of what you are contemplating and what you are focused on into your awareness. So every time you think the people that are out there are no good, you attract the people that are out there that are no good. good. (laughs) And then it reinforces the belief that, oh yeah, I have to be the one because I'm the smartest in the building. When you start to have a different mindset, when you start to look at things more holistically through the eye, through the lens of who is the person that's coming to me and what do they have to offer, and you start to grow appreciation for what that is, what tends mm-hmm. to happen is you get more of the thing that you are focused on. So that person brings their talents. You see more of their talents. You then are thus more receptive to their talents, and then they bring more of their talents to your workplace. And so by virtue of just shifting the way that you even look at it, you get yes. a better you get a better person you get a better process and a better relationship but on the flip side of it what you said i think is really very key is the the idea that when you have systems it is easier to get people in and bought in and on the road to being really successful for your company but it's not necessarily the way that a lot of lawyers think <laughs> a lot of lawyers think i'm going to sit down one weekend And I'm going to bang out a a systems manual and I'm going to give it to someone when I hire them. And then I'm going to tell them here, go read this. If you have any questions, come see me. And that's not how people learn. People learn through the experiential uh, process of actually doing right. I always tell my lawyers the best way of learning is the trifecta, right? The hearing, the seeing and the kinesthetic doing of the activity. So it's important that when you're thinking about creating a systems culture, that you not be the only person that is systematizing, that you actually have your team involved in the process of documenting what they are already doing, and then starting to look at the most efficient way and the most profitable way to do that just to do that work for you. So that as they are building out the systems through a process that you learn, they start to see the importance of it. It becomes hardwired in them that this is the way we do things. And mm-hmm. every new person that comes in doesn't just have a book to read. They have a body who's going to walk them through a process. They institutionally understand it. They understand it at the global level and at the individual level. And then you have a process for getting them onto that system much faster. So it then becomes kind of a team approach of getting your new people up and running faster so that everyone can get to work faster, can make the most money, can have the greatest ease, can have the least amount of frustration, can have the least amount of questions pinging them all day with what do I do and how do I do? It becomes an easier way of work for everyone. And you bring up a good point. So especially if you already have a team in place or people that work with you, you are not necessarily the best person to come up with the system or every step in the system. It really should be a team approach because, you know, you've got these other people who are actually going to be implementing a lot of this system. And they have a viewpoint and they have experience and they have, you know, they have things that you don't that relate to that. And you really need to get their input and buy-in on it, which then creates more buy-in from the team, which then means they're going to be more motivated. This is leadership, y'all, by the way. (laughs) Um, And then when you hire new people, it's going to be more obvious to them that this has been really thoughtful. It's been, you know, put together to make their lives easier and better. And it's just, it's going to create a much more seamless experience. Yes. 
Yes, 100%. And every person that comes in, I mean, this is the thing that since you mentioned leadership that I think so many of us don't really contemplate is that people do not take jobs so that they can be told what to do. Mm-hmm. Even though in the in in most systems, especially one that deals with professional services where there are, you know, great stakes uh, at risk if you ultimately do something wrong, Yes, a person understands they will be told what to do. But most people don't say, sign me up to go someplace and be told what to do all day. And when you take a person who is intelligent, capable, and skilled, whether it is the skill of a lawyer or the skill of a marketing assistant or the skill of a paralegal or or a receptionist, you take those skills and that person wants to bring their skills to bear and you reduce them down to nothing more than an order taker, that's very limiting. So some Mm -hmm. people are going to rebel against it. Some people are going to fall in line. They're going to take your orders. They're going to follow your instructions, but they're going to say, well, if all I'm doing is following orders, then I will do nothing other than follow orders, which means anytime that they have to think independently, they have now uh, dulled the, the knife. They don't know how to anymore, or they have gotten the message from you that that is not valued by you. So ultimately, the very thing that frustrates you the most, that people keep coming into your office and asking you how to do things, is something <laughs> that you are unwittingly engendering in them. And yes. then you penalize them for doing it because they see you roll your eyes. <laughs> right? They hear that heavy sigh when they walk in. They get the message that ultimately, if I do it the way you want, which is how you've taught me, to ask questions, you're going to be unhappy with me. And if I do it the way that I want, which is to do it myself, it's not the way that you want. So you're going to be unhappy with me. And that puts people in a lose-lose situation, which is part of the reason why you have turnover. You have people that ultimately stop trying. They stop trying to learn. They stop really contributing. And that's a perfect example of what I was talking about earlier on some of this is on you. And this is a way to change that whole cycle and become a real leader and you know, since we are talking about leadership, I think it's really important. I think there's a lot of people out there who don't understand what leadership really is. They think that they're a leader because they manage a team or they manage people. And that does not make you a leader. It may make you a manager, but not a leader. Leadership is when you learn to utilize the strengths and skills of others and allow them to flourish And do so in a way that is really inspirational to those people so that they're willing to step up and buy in to the overall objective and the mission and be their best best version for themselves, for you, for the team, for everyone. And that does not come purely by managing. And and, because managing a lot is this top down, tell people what to do. You step into leadership when you go above and beyond and want to help inspire and influence them in a positive way to be them, which means you've got to utilize their skills and strengths and allow them to do all these things. And so I love that we're talking about this because I think people, you know, they hear systematizing, they hear processes and they're like, yeah, yeah, that's just time consuming. That's a chore. That's no, it's it is part of being a really good leader and building a great team that will actually support you for the long term and keep it sustainable. Because when you only manage, yes, you have turnover or you have people that never live up to the expectations and never actually do all the things that you want to do. You get one or the other, right? You don't get what you really want. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, when we talk about turnover, you know, we have to recognize the landscape that we're in. And this Mm -hmm. is, this is both before and after COVID. It's not COVID specific. 
But, you know, the reality is that, you know, according to the ABA, every four years, a lawyer is going to turn. And Mm -hmm. once upon a time, your support staff was even more stable than your legal team. But now paralegals turn every three years. And that isn't because all of the law firms of America are awful places to work, right? I hear a lot of people denigrate our profession, not only for lawyers themselves, but also for lawyers or bad business people and they're bad managers. And here's the thing. I... While I acknowledge that there are a lot of challenges that lawyers had, I mean, I certainly had them. You know, I was a very aggressive litigator and it was very challenging to move into the energy of being a holistic manager and then ultimately um, a a, uh, vision-led leader. But ultimately, I knew that I had to do those things. And so I did do those things. I find that lawyers are so concerned about the people that they manage that they err in the wrong direction. It's almost like, you know, we think of the lawyer who's selfish and self-centered and money-driven yep. and and is the tyrant. I actually find most of my clients and actually most lawyers that I talk to, they are so conflict avoidant. They yes. are so, you know, <laughs> all right, here's a person. The person's willing to be here. Let me just tolerate them as long as I can. And they don't even think about what they're doing to themselves and their own morale or the morale of the other people in the company by virtue of having underachievers in their space. And this really does start with leadership in terms of getting the right people in, right? So get people who are bought into not just having the paycheck, but also being a contributor to the culture, being able to facilitate whatever the work is of the entity. And you get people who are aligned with that. It will be a lot easier to see that they are somebody who is either going to figure it out for themselves or is going to need more help, whether you choose to hire them or not you need to know where they're coming in so you have an expectation that's reasonable to what you're asking of them and what they're ultimately looking to do. And when you put those two in alignment, it becomes a lot easier to get people on board and get them going, growing faster. And for all the people that are like, oh my God, that's so boring. I don't want to be thinking about culture. I just want to go (laughs) over and do my work and go home. The reality is you make a lot more money and you save a lot more time when you focus on getting the work done through the right people in the right way. That little bit of synergy is going to get you so much more efficiency. And that turns into a few hundred dollars here, a few thousand dollars here, tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars as your company grows. Yeah, it reaps huge rewards over time. Yes, it does require a commitment up front, but it will save so much in the long haul. And I do love that you pointed out, I think the profession has a bad rap. It drives me insane. Most lawyers I know are really great people. It's just that most of us go through school not taking management classes, not knowing much about how to manage people or what leadership really is. Then we go to law school and we're trying to be very risk averse, (laughs) to analyze risk, to look at all the problems. And we're trained a particular way that we need to be trained to think like a lawyer, right? But there's no classes on how to run a business and how to manage a team and how to put all this together. And so we're kind of left for ourselves. And unfortunately, law firms don't do a great job at teaching that either. And frankly, probably because the lawyers who are leading most law firms, even big firms, aren't the best leaders themselves because they've never been taught. And so it's this like perpetuating cycle that we've created. And I think you're right. A lot of times it relates to risk avoidance. The thing that you need to remember is ultimate risk, though, like if you really want to avoid risk, it is to spend that time up front because, you know, think about the risk of 
having the wrong people and keeping them around, of not training people properly. You know, systematizing and having processes in place, you're going to have a much better team, a much stronger team behind you that is going to avoid risk over the long haul. Yeah. I but mean, you just you know, got to shift your viewpoint. Yeah. I and, mean, you know, it's there's a big upfront commitment. But, you know, for a lot of lawyers, when, when I talk to them about this topic, they're like, oh, my God, I just don't have the time. I'm already overworked. I already have too much to do. And what I always tell people is I don't want you to think about this as scaling a mountain, right? Mm-hmm. This is literally eating an elephant one bite at a time, yeah. right? And and that can be something as small as, you know, we take 30 minutes of our lunch hour and we start the process of teaching how, and then we give a reasonable requirement. And see, I have a lot of shortcuts. I'm a big fan of, of, of creating abbreviated ways of doing things until you can get yourself to a place that's a lot less constricted so that you have the time to be able to do it in a more thorough way. But I, I use the state of art as the, uh, as the acronym of choice. You know, art stands for ask, record, transcribe. Mm. Like just call somebody into your office and literally record them telling you step by step of what they do to complete a task and then get it transcribed. You know, you have so many now artificial intelligence tools that are very inexpensive, you know, $15 a month for you to get hours of transcripts. And next thing you know, you start to have a body to work with, right? So it doesn't Uh feel like I'm sitting down and I've got a blank sheet of paper staring at me and I have to write all of the rules of all of the entities of all of the departments in my business. Uh It's one thing at a time. And what you'll start to see is like, once you actually create it into a template, once you have a form that you use and you have the ways of actually thinking through what goes in it, it becomes a lot easier and people start doing it automatically. So one of the things is kind of like the perfect example. People say to me all the time, they, they, they laugh, you know, people will ask me things. So, oh, uh, when, when can I get a meeting with you to talk to you about this, this new email marketing platform we want to talk about? I'm like, well, I'm not the one who does that. And they're like, okay, well, can you put me in contact with the person who does that? And I'll say, sure, I'll put you in contact with that person. And then the, the introduction email gets handed off. And next thing you know, the person will say to me, oh, wow, this person had all of these sorts of assumptions about, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And we stopped doing that years ago. And I'm like, oh, we did? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and and people are like, you don't know that? And I'm like, no, why do I need to know that? I need to know right. that it's done. I need to know that it's done. I need to know that it's ethical. I need to know that it's legal. I need to know it's making me money. So as long as somebody who is over that can give me a report, uh, can keep me apprised, you know, I have the mm-hmm. access to the information when I need it. That's all I need. And that's how you get your business, not just to be systematized, but to not require the owner of the company. So there are a lot of lawyers that want to be the chief cook and bottle washer. They want to be at the epicenter. They want to be lawyering. They want to be meeting with clients. And that's great. Like I never tell people how to choose to live, right? Once upon a time, that was the love of my life. I lawyered 60 hours a week for a larger firm. I loved it more than anything. But at some point, if you decide you want time with your family, you want time off, you want to be able to freely come and go as you please, you want to work fewer hours, or you want not to work in your business at all, you can engineer your business that way. Mm -hmm. That's the myth that most lawyers don't get, that they think that if I own the company, I have to be responsible for everything. And that means I have to be involved in everything. And you can be responsible for something without having all of the minutiae. I want you to think about this from the perspective of a larger company, right? Yep. Do you think that the managing partner of White and Case knows how the email sequences are sent out to um, the new prospects of each department of the business? 
Of course not. Right? You got thousands of lawyers. You know, they're obviously for each for each division, for each local uh, place, you might have hundreds of lawyers, but that means hundreds of lawyers and hundreds of power professional staff and hundreds of administrative people all the way down to the runners and the mail clerks and so forth. There's no way that the person who is responsible for it all could know it all. The nope. same is true in a small company. Like your mind is going to tap out on information at some point. And if you believe that you have to have it all, you are deluding yourself that you do have it all. All that you're doing is giving yourself a very convenient story that feels good in the moment so that you can hold on to the illusion of control so that you feel that you are less at risk of having a grievance or a malpractice claim or an employee sue you or what have you. You are simply telling yourself a story that feels good. It is not the truth that you know. That is not true. So I'm sure when people first come to you, their eyes are wide. They want to do this. But where on earth to even start, (laughs) right? So what are your recommendations for where people can get started if they're interested in systematizing? Yeah. So the first thing I always tell people is, you know, I gave you that acronym ART, right? Uh I always say start where the friction is, right? Mm. And the reason for that is purely psychological. You know, we, a lot of us, we'll just dive into the problem that's on on our desk, the problem that's kind of screaming at us. Yep. But the challenge is that if you don't start where the most the most problematic energy is in the business, where you are, it's keeping you up at night, it's 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 making everyone miserable, you know, it's creating friction, it's creating the most risk. If you don't start there, then you're still gonna have that ticking time bomb in your mind when you're working on something else. So it's really important that you get out of your immediate orbit the problems that are about to explode. Now, having said that, a lot of people say, I've got explosions going off everywhere. I I still Mm -hmm. don't know where to start. I always say, start where you're going to make the most money. So Mm -hmm. that tends to be in the area of sales, then marketing, then collections, depending Mm -hmm. on how you've structured your firm. If you have have an hourly firm or if you have a a flat fee firm, but you're you're getting paid in stages, Um, or even if you have a subscription firm and you have someone who may be behind in um, their monthly payments, start there. And then once you start to have more money in, you have more breathing room, whether it's breathing room to bill less so you can work on some of the systems or it's breathing room to be able to hire someone to be able to assist you. I've got to say, in my experience with my clients so far, I would so agree with collections being one of those that people must tackle. It is an area that a lot of lawyers don't deal with very well at all. They're afraid to ask for money. They don't like asking for money. They also, on the front end, hate talking about fees, right? So those are two areas where I feel like if you can systematize and and create a process where it takes you out of as much of it, it really helps. And I've seen this time and again with my own clients. I'm sure you have too. And even if it doesn't take you out completely of the process, some of my clients want to be more involved in that. Some don't at all. With a system, it gives you permission to look, I'm following the system and you just do it. And it just makes it so much easier. Something that is really difficult for a lot of us. <laughs> money, money is tough, right? Mm-hmm. And so many lawyers don't grow businesses because they are afraid of sales. 
They are afraid of directly asking. It's kind of like, well, if you come to me and you are nice enough to want to hire me, then I'll have a conversation with you. But I'm not going to in any way try to promote myself to you. I'm not going to follow up with you. At the end of the meeting, I'm going to offer you the agreement. I'm going to say, here, go home and think about it. I'm going to invite you not to hire me. Yeah. It's the worst way possible. (laughs) Right, right. Once you've hired me, I'm then going to just let you sit out there and not pay me and say, okay, can you you know, it, your, your bill's getting up there. You know, I'm going to send emails. I'm going to be somewhat passive aggressive. Like, oh, this person wants me to do such and such. But, you know, the reality is I have a very, very detailed training on collections. And we talk a lot about all of the systemic approach to collections that, mm-hmm. like you said, really takes a lot of that pain out of it. Yep. Right. So billing more frequently is the number one thing. Right. When people hear, oh, my God, you want me to bill more than once a month? I already have to take however long to go through and review all the pre-bills. I couldn't possibly do it more frequently. Well, here's the thing. Whether you're billing 100 hours once a month or you're billing 50 hours twice a month, it's the same number of transactions that are going to be processed. It's just broken up into a different process around getting it out to your clients. But the more frequently someone has the responsibility of paying you, the more they get acculturated to the idea of paying you, Uh the more they are looking for the next time that they're going to have to pay you. And the smaller the bill is going to be. I mean, I remember when I first started in practice, I was kind of like, okay, I got money coming in. I'm selling, I'm selling, I'm selling. I'm getting money from my clients. Great, great, great. Oh, crap. We're running low on money. It's time to bill somebody. And I'd start issuing bills for $10,000, $6,000, $9,000. And people would be like, (gasps) you know, and they are less likely to pay it. They're less likely to pay it on time. Uh Uh, They have to like psychologically adjust to it. They have to go figure things out. But if you are billing them every single month or biweekly, and you're doing it on a schedule, then they have an easier time coming up with a hundred dollars or a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars rather than tens of thousands of dollars all at once. And then the conversation is a really powerful one. Like you have to get into the habit of knowing and valuing your worth. You Uh are not selling people a divorce or a, uh, a, a dispositional conference or a real estate transaction. You are selling people freedom you're selling them peace of mind. You're giving them ease of life. You're giving them value in their world. And if that value wasn't greater of importance to them than the dollars that they exchange for it, there would be no transaction. Right. So you have to get into the mindset that you are giving someone something of greater value to them than what you are taking in exchange for it. So that when you ask for money, you're not saying I'm taking something from my client. Your mindset is I'm giving something to my client that's greater than what they're giving me in exchange. And absolutely it is. I mean, you got to think about you're not just providing a legal service. You are providing some type of result they need and want, whether it's peace of mind, whether it's, you know, think about the ripple effect of what you're doing for them. Okay. Because there is a ripple effect and that impacts them personally and or professionally and their business, depending on what kind of lawyer you are and what kind of services you're providing. And you want to always keep that front and center when you're thinking about your fees and, you know, when you're asking for business and when you're collecting. Something I wanted to note, because you talk about um, billing processes and doing it as often as possible. There, For those folks out there who practiced like I did, and I was a finance attorney, and it, it is traditional for finance lawyers to not bill when you work for the bank until the end, right, when it closes, and so we would, it would be this huge bill at the end of the project, right, when it's closing that would get paid. Well, I had processes in place to ensure I knew exactly where we were. 
every two weeks, I would check it out. I would make sure we were on track. We had very honest conversations up front about what I thought the project would entail. And, but, you know, they'd often want to know, what do you think this will be? Which I would give them my honest, you know, opinion. But I was also honest, like, this is going to change. It may come lower, it may come higher. It's going to depend on what happens, which is why I had a two-week process where I had to check things out. And I would have conversations. That was part of the process of, hey, we're on track or, hey, we're not, and here's why. So that at the end result, it was never a surprise. Like, they always knew what was coming. So even if you're not billing that regularly for, you know, some reason, like, you can't. And there's not a lot of reasons why you can't. This is one of them that that I just said. You can still have processes in place to keep track and stay up to date and make sure there's communication with the client. And it doesn't have to be you necessarily that has that communication, but somebody needs to have that communication if you're going off track, especially. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it's really important of what you're saying there is about the key to relationship building through talking about money, right? So I can have a conversation with that, which says, all right, we have to do this next thing. You're going to have to pay me X. Or Mm -hmm. I can say, we get to do this next thing and I'm going to keep you apprised and I'm going to keep you ahead of the curve by getting your money now so that you're not surprised down the road, right? Mm -hmm. The first conversation is very much a, I'm going to take from you because I have to do something to you. Mm -hmm. Very different than the conversation in the latter instance where I'm going to do something for you by educating, informing, and counseling you. That's my job. And I'm going to protect you through this process by making sure that we keep you financially solvent as we go through this process. And the number of times that lawyers are able to make the shift and get a far better result is really just, it's through the roof. But, you know, for even those of us that knowing, you know, I have a very constricted attitude toward money, you know, you could have had money issues growing up. There could have been any number of messages that you kind of absorb from our culture about money being a bad thing and how to talk about it and, and that we don't talk about it. There are other ways, right? You know, I always tell people, like, if you're not good at something, don't try to kill yourself to get better at it. You need to get a certain level of competency at it as a business owner, Uh because God forbid, at some point, you're not able to afford to have people to do things for you. You do need to be able to do them yourself. And you need to be able to effectively see when someone's not doing their job. So before you outsource it, be good at it, or at least good enough at it. But at some point, other people can do things, right? You're never yep. going to be the best marketer, the best salesperson, the best, you know, the best lawyer, the best paralegal, the best um, manager. That's nope. impossible, right? Yep. There's only so many hours of the day that you can devote to that 10,000 hours of expertise. So you really have to figure out like, what is it that I'm going to outsource? But outsourcing can't be abdicating. You can't mm. dump your dollars in someone else's lap and say, here, you go chase these dollars and I'll see you when I'm, you know, when I get back from court, you have to be on top of it and you have to know what is happening. But the way that you do that is through creating systems that make it easier for whoever is placing the phone call to have that relational contact with the client. So the client does not resent you. The client plays their bills because they recognize there's an exchange of value and they do so in a way that makes them feel that they are getting something greater in the process. So what would you say to, I have a fair amount of big law lawyers who listen to this. And in my experience, big law lawyers like to think they're special. And because, you know, they're in big law and there are already structures and systems in place within the firm. And so they might be thinking, well, most of this doesn't really apply to me. What would you say to them? Definitely not true. So 
I used to work at a large law firm, so I get it, right? Here's the thing. I had to create systems around my desk, mm-hmm. right? I had to create systems for how I was going to get information to my secretary and back, how I was going to work with the word processing department, how I was going to get documents over to um, our courier to get them to court on time, right? Systems are not just about business ownership. They are about creating ease of life. Mm. They create ease of life, whether you are systematizing your household or you are systematizing your friendships or you're systematizing the work that you're doing in your office. Having a way of doing things removes the time investment and the intellectual investment of having to figure it out on the fly. And what a lot of lawyers don't realize, I never thought about this. Somebody told it to me. and I honestly can't can't recall now who it was, but I was a young associate. And I remember at the end of the day, I would just be beat. And I remember mm-hmm. like when the firm would have happy hours, I would have to go and I'd be like, I, you know, I, I don't want to go out to drink. I just, I, can I use this time to nap? <laughs> can, I, yes. can I get some of my energy back? And then I was like, well, why am I so tired? Like, you know, I would literally go, I would pack my trial bag. I'd go to court. I'd be on my feet all day, but I wasn't, I wasn't lifting bricks. I wasn't out in the sun. <laughs> right? You know, I'm on my feet. I'm having conversations. I'm advising my clients. And what I realized, and this person brought it to my attention, I was like, that's exactly right. The energy expenditure was from the tiredness of my brain, not yep. the tiredness of my body, right? All that time that I am spending having to, all right, well, what do we do with this? All right, well, okay, I got to remember to put this document in this particular part of the file. Okay, when I get back to the office, I got to remember to, you know, like that stuff wasn't automatic until I made it automatic. And part of the reason why I was able to get to 24, 26, 2800 billable hours in a year, that was my highest ever, was because I was able to work like a machine on the thing that was producing the billable time and not on where to find the file, uh, when to communicate something, Mm -hmm. what time of the day I was going to review my emails. Okay, emailing and writing letters and phone calls and emails and writing letters and phone calls and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. I got very systemic about how my time was to be handled so that I could get the most out of every moment of my time. And that made me very, very effective, very, very successful, very financially secure. And it also took a lot of the frustration out of my time. So part of the reason why I could work 60 or 70 hours a week and not feel burnt out is because I was doing the thing that I loved and not all the crap Mm. that was needed to facilitate the thing that I loved. And that's something that I would definitely give over to a big law attorney. Yeah, and I think, you know... I hear this a lot too. And I think this, this systematizing and putting processes in place completely obliterates this problem of you get to the end of a day where you feel like you've been crazy busy, right? You're mentally exhausted and you look back and you're like, what did I actually get done? And you realize you didn't get that much billable work done. Yeah. And it's so deflating. And I hear that a lot from new clients when they first come in and that's a result of not having anything in place because you're trying to do everything new. You're trying to do it all on your own. You're not relying on anybody to help you. And it, you know, it just goes on and on. And so if that's you, this is one of your answers to, to how to get rid of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, the mental load, I think that a lot of us don't really think about is the fact that when you're bouncing back and forth, you know, mm-hmm. you, you lose a lot of time. You don't oh, yeah. think you lose the time because you're physically doing something but the amount of time that it takes for you to shift from one thought to another to bounce back and forth really does deplete your time and your energy. And so one of the things that I systematized in our law firm here 
is, and I, I remember I did this as an associate and I, and I, it kind of like clicked when I had a problem with one of my associates was really struggling with, with hitting her requirements is we, we, we block schedule and mm. we block schedule communication. So when clients call the office, they don't call the office and expect that they're going to get a lawyer on the phone unless there are certain emergencies. And we have a screening protocol, you know, what is the matter? What is the nature of the issue? There are times where a lawyer will be interrupted, but for the most part, Clients call and clients know. They're told in advance before they even start working with a lawyer. When you call the office, we will be figuring out what the nature of your problem is and we will immediately schedule you for one of two blocks of office hours that the lawyer has that week. So Mm -hmm. that when they come to the call, they are prepared. They're not having to take your time and bill you to go get your file, to look something up, to figure out what's going on. They are prepared with an answer if it's something that we can give you a quick answer for. If it's something that requires research, that research is done by the time you get on the phone. And what we found is that clients don't call anywhere near as much because they know when they're going to talk to the lawyer. Sometimes Mm. I call you at nine o'clock and you're going to return my phone call and I'm still anxious. So at two o'clock, I call you back and then you haven't gotten back to me so that when you call me at four, I'm pissed feeling like Mm -hmm. I have invested all of this time versus I call at nine o'clock. And I'm told, okay, great. We've got you scheduled for 10 o'clock tomorrow. And by that time, we want you to have sent this document. We want you to have responded to this email. And we want you to um, summarize the following issues so that your call can be productive. And clients then start to work with their lawyer in a way that constantly has them moving to the next thing, right? They're always looking for the next activity. Right. Now, that's not necessary in all practice areas. You know, we are a matrimonial law firm. So family law has a little bit more of the day-to-day contact. But right. It's true in any practice area that if you manage your client, your client will not manage you. And a lot of lawyers are being run by their clients. By their clients. Yeah, no, you, it is up to you to train your clients. And, and it's funny you say this because I I think back on when I was practicing and I didn't, I don't know that I thought of it as systematizing and putting processes in place, but I very much did. You know, I had a time every, at the beginning of every week where I met with people I was working on projects and we would, that was our time to like talk about what was going on, what needed to be done, anything that had come up, we didn't know, you know, that was the time. I had time during the week where people knew this is the time to interrupt, to like to go to Heather and ask questions and time where it was like, this is, she's off limits because this is her deep dive work. And I didn't answer phone calls then. I didn't, you know, clients knew if they needed me to text or call my cell phone because that's, that's when I knew it was a true emergency. And they almost never, ever did, by the way. Um, you can train your clients and set up these processes and procedures and expectations from the beginning. And as long as you tell them ahead of time and then enforce it, they will be fine with it. Where you get in trouble is when you don't clearly tell them what to expect. And then after doing so, constantly saying, no, this is okay. This is, you know, making exceptions because then they don't know what the rules actually are. And so they're just going to start going at it, you know, not abiding by the rules that you told them because obviously they don't really exist. Right. You don't, if you don't respect your rules, they won't respect your rules. Correct. You know, I tell people that all the time, you know, um, most of my career in in family law was spent representing parents in the child welfare system. So um, I would go to court when someone's child had been taken away and put into foster care. And so when people say, oh, my clients would never respect my cell phone. Don't you dare give your cell phone. They will harass you. I've never had that problem. And clients Mm -hmm. routinely had my cell phone because I wanted to know, given the nature of what we were dealing with, 
if the state showed up at their house on a Saturday, I'm going to deal with it on right. a Saturday. <laughs> right. So that means they needed to be able to get a hold of me. And I never had clients abuse my cell phone. I literally have experienced that maybe twice in my entire career. And I told the client, you're fired. Well, no, you can't fire me. I was like, I absolutely can fire you. And we're not mm-hmm. doing this because I gave you a rule. You didn't respect it. And then I got immediate contrition and the problem never resurfaced again. And people just don't believe it. It's almost like there's a lack mindset that runs in the hands of, in your mind. Like if I say the wrong thing to a client, they're going to fire me. So I'm going to either lose the ability to support myself if I own my own company, or if I work for someone else, I'm going to piss off the managing partner. I'm going to lose my referral base. I'm going to, it's going to hurt me at time for annual review and salary review. And the reality is clients respect you when you respect yourself. And it really does start with how you treat yourself. When you lay down the law for them in a way that's respectful, but also there's something in it for you, right? I'm available to you when I'm available to you. That means I'm not available to someone else. So why then do you expect that when I'm available to someone else and only that person that you should be able to barge in? You know, if you want me to be as dedicated to you as I am, then you have to allow me to be as dedicated to other people as I am with you. And they well, and I, intellectually get that. They get that with usually without you even having to say it that way. But if you do say it that way, then they really get it, right? And so I think it just shows that a lot of lawyers don't realize the conversations they need to have with their clients and how honest they need to be and why. And that there is a really great way to do this. And it creates a lot of respect between, you know, they will start to see you not just as your, you as the lawyer, but as a human being as well, which is something you want, by the way, (laughs) Um, and respect you so much more for it and be more loyal to you. That's something that a lot of people don't realize. My clients were incredibly loyal to me to the point of when I had to leave for almost a year to fight breast cancer and hand all my work over to other people, they stayed. And then I grew my business way bigger after I came back. And it was because we had that kind of relationship and they had that kind of respect for me and thought of me as somebody who would always give them my undevoted attention when I was with them, but that I also did that for other people, which is why I had those boundaries. And I think lawyers, do you do yourself such a disservice by not going there. Yeah. And it's all about the system. I mean... Mm -hmm. You know, for a lot of people, they say that doesn't, it just rolls off your tongue. And I said, well, you know, at one point it didn't. So I had a system for that. Yeah. Right. And, and the thing of it is, is that the whole value of systems is really the idea of making things automatic, right? The less time and energy and effort you have to devote to things that are even challenging, right? You know, we have systems for terminating people. I've never enjoyed terminating people. I don't expect that I ever will. And I don't want to ever enjoy it. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's a system for it. So instead of me being in my feelings with, okay, how do I respond if the person says this? And how do I do this? And like, what happens when all of that is really on a conveyor belt? And Mm -hmm. I have to revisit it because it doesn't happen that often. But I can look at it and say, ah, yes, there's a why here, right? Every system that that we create has a why. Why do we do it this way? We do it this way to minimize risk, right? We do it this way to be respectful of people. We do it this way to expedite the process. We do it this way to ensure compliance, right? All of those whys are floating through my head when I do things so that when I have to do something I haven't done before 
and I have to think up what the system's going to be. The why has motivated our manner of doing things, our value system. And then when you teach other people, you're teaching other people not just how to do, but you're teaching them how to think, how to think like you, how to think the way that you want things done so that if they're on their own script, their own script then becomes your script when it's time for them to execute something they haven't done before. And they can say, okay, we've got a problem. Here's how I propose to solve it based on the fact that we do X in this scenario and Y in this scenario and Z in this scenario. Mm -hmm. You have a better informed populace and people who are intelligent and capable are better able to be intelligent and capable without your presence. So great. I think that's a perfect ending point for today's <laughs> conversation. And what I what I love about this conversation, it went all over the place and we explored a lot of things that weren't, you know, we're getting on a call to talk about systems and how unexciting it sounds. And yet I think this will show people how exciting it actually is. Yeah. More money and more free time is always exciting to me. And that's always that exciting. Comes through. <laughs> that definitely yes. comes through systems. Yes. So why don't you tell people where they can find you? Sure. So um, I am Allison Williams, the law firm mentor, and you can find us at our website, which is lawfirmmentor.net. One thing I did not share with you that I usually say at the beginning of a call, but uh, I will say it now, is that the law firm mentor is a business coaching service for solo and small law firm attorneys. And we help you to grow your revenues, to crush chaos in business, and to make more money. So you can find us on our website. You can also find us on all of the social media platforms. And of course, on our podcast, which is the Crushing Chaos with Law Firm Mentor podcast. Awesome. Well, I will be sure to include links to everything as well. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Heather. This was great. All right. Before I let you go, I have a quick announcement for any private practice lawyers out there who want more clients, more originations, and more income. Look. I know that you want to grow your business, and I know that you probably are worried about the impact of a looming recession. I've been there, but you only have so much time and are probably not sure where to focus your efforts because there are a million different things you could be doing, which are the ones that are right for you to focus on right now, right? That will actually bring a return on your investment. I have you covered. Join me on September 15th for my first ever Life and Law Learning Series workshops where we're going to talk about all things client development. In fact, the course name is How to Improve Your Client Development ROI. Here is a quick taste of the kind of things we're going to be covering. We're going to talk about five common client development mistakes that are costing you time and how to correct them. We're going to talk about the number one strategy that is statistically proven to increase your return of investment by up to 50%. We're also going to talk about a simple system that will help you determine what to focus your efforts on and what to drop completely and more. So what should you expect by joining? I'm going to teach you these things. You're going to have space to ask questions, and it's only going to take about an hour of your time. We will meet via Zoom. It will be happening again on September 15th at 11.30 a.m. Central Standard Time, 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you are a lawyer in private practice wanting to grow your business, I highly encourage you to come. This is your chance to learn from me for free. All you have to do is register, and I will include a link for where to go to register via Zoom in the show notes. That is it for this week. We will be talking again next week. Bye for now. 
Thank you for listening to the Life & Law Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode and aren't yet a follower or subscriber, be sure to hit the follow and or subscribe button so that you don't miss an episode. For show notes and free resources to help you succeed in both Life & Law, including the Life & Law Roadmap, visit lifeandlawpodcast.com.